Welcome to In Social Work, the podcast series of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work at www.insocialwork.org. We're glad you could join us today. The purpose of In Social Work is to engage practitioners and researchers in lifelong learning and to promote research to practice and practice to research. We're In Social Work. We cram a lot into our warm weather season here in Buffalo. Our downtown waterfront is hopping. You can attend a concert, visit a microbrewery, rent a kayak and get out on the lake. Well, maybe not in that order. And then proceed to the Elmwood Village for just about any kind of experience. I'm Peter Sabota. Quality of life is a subjective concept embedded in an individual person's experiences and self-determination and self-expression are important pieces of a person's quality of life. In this episode, our guests Bonnie Wilkenfeld, Kenneth Roby, and Eileen Murray discuss their study of the quality of life of persons with developmental disabilities whose ability to engage in self-actualizing and fulfilling experiences is often limited, sometimes even ignored, by their significant others and caregivers. Our guests discuss their work examining the link between a facilitated arts program and the participants' sense of self. They describe just what is a facilitated arts program, the process for the artist mentors, who incidentally are professional artists, and the process of the artist's creation. They discuss their findings as they examine the impact of this collaboration. Our guests describe the broader applications of their findings beyond persons with developmental disabilities, future directions for their work, and the implications for social work practice. Bonnie Wilkenfeld, LCSW, is a doctoral candidate at the Rutgers University School of Social Work. Kenneth Roby, PhD, is director of the Matheny Institute for Research in Developmental Disabilities at the Matheny Medical and Educational Center, and Eileen Murray, is the program director at the Matheny Arts Access. Our guests today were interviewed by our own John Kiesler, a doctoral candidate here at the UB School of Social Work. My name is John Kiesler, and I am with the School of Social Work at the University of Buffalo. And today I'm speaking with Bonnie Wilkenfeld and her colleagues, Dr. Ken Roby and Eileen Murray at the Matheny Medical Center. Thank you and welcome to all of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So if we could start, can you describe the project briefly in terms of your aims and goals? Sure. This is Bonnie. First of all, in order to be able to fully describe and appreciate the project, we must really give you a good understanding of the population that we serve. Matheny Medical and Educational Center is a specialized school and hospital that serves children and adults with multiple developmental disabilities. The people that are served by our facility are not here only because of their developmental disabilities, but rather because of the medical complexity and their relatively fragile health status. Our primary patients have generally between 10 and 15 diagnoses in addition to their primary diagnosis. Most of our persons served need assistance with all aspects of activities of daily living. They may not be able to verbally articulate and they do rely on assistive technology, different types of assistive technology for a variety of purposes, including mobility and communication. So in terms of autonomy and self-direction, there are many barriers that they may experience. 
This project was inspired by this population, and it's partly an evaluation of a program that Eileen is the director of, the Facilitated Arts Program called Arts Access, which is part of an array of services that we provided our medical center. And the primary goal of that program is to enrich each individual's sense of self by increasing self-esteem, achieving a sense of self-sufficiency, and providing an avenue of creative self-expression. For our purposes, we're viewing self-perceptions and identity as a dynamic unfolding process, which is impacted by the multiplicity of different roles, vocations, avocations, affiliations, albeit the various social contexts which comprise individual's life. And my particular thesis is that by exposing individuals to rich and varied social contextual environments, ultimately their sense of self, their identity complexity will be affected and become more complex and nuanced. And so we're suggesting that participation in a facilitated arts program, such as Arts Access, might serve as an example of such an enriching type of environment. Very good. Could you now speak to the actual presenting problem you're looking to address? Yeah, sure. We're exploring the impact of participation in the facilitated arts program on the life quality of individuals with developmental disability and suggest that that's one particular type of stimulating, enriching social environmental context, as I previously mentioned. And we're also exploring the utility of hierarchical classification analysis, also dubbed high class for short, as a tool for depicting such self-perceptions. We did do some pilot work a year ago, utilizing the high class analysis, and findings suggested positive self-perceptions were associated with the various art identities. And in keeping with the social model of disabilities framework, we've adopted a constructivistic viewpoint in that by exposure to enriched environmental contexts, such as provided by an arts access program, there may be an impact on identity complexity and subsequently implications for improved life quality for the individual. Can you please describe what exactly the facilitated art process looks like? Yes, this is Eileen, and I'd be glad to do that. As Bonnie described earlier, the Matheny's population have many physical limitations. Most are in wheelchairs and have limited mobility, and many are nonverbal. So as such, many don't have the physical means by which to grasp a paintbrush, let alone wield it to their satisfaction. And they don't have the physical capability to write or type a novel or a poem, or to choreograph a dance, or to direct a play. All that being said, they do have the creative ability. So our program provides freedom to realize their artistic visions. And that's essentially our mission. And our officially stated one is the mission of Arts Access is to provide individuals with disabilities the freedom to create in the visual, literary, and performing arts. Now, the key words there are provide the freedom. So in order to provide this freedom, we facilitate the art process. In the most basic of terms, we serve as the arms and the legs for people who can't use theirs. And in doing so, we need to find out exactly what they want to do in the art medium of their choice, painting, choreography, writing, drama, sculpture, and for many of our participants, all of them. Essentially, facilitation equals communication. 
We have created a unique methodology combined of questioning, visual charts and systems, and that puts every single choice into the hands of the artists with disabilities. So the people who facilitate are aptly called facilitators. They're working professional artists and they serve solely as a conduit between the client, Matheny client, and their artwork. And it's the facilitator's job and the most important part of their job is to carry out those choices to the exacting nth degree that nothing is done, no paint is put on the canvas, no step happens within a dance until the facilitator is 100% sure that they're carrying out that individual's creative wishes. Sounds like it definitely could be a little bit of a challenge for staff at times. Yes, you hit the nail on the head. The people that we hire are all professional artists in their field. And we always say that all facilitators are professional artists. Not all professional artists can be a facilitator. It really requires a specific type of person, abundant, endless patience, and the ability to remain completely neutral in the art making process. So the people that we have on staff here are extraordinary in their ability to do that. And they go through a stringent, extensive training process to learn the systems, the methodology, the questioning methods, et cetera. Okay. Can we go back for a second to the methodology that was used, this high class program? Can you speak to that a bit? Yes, this is Ken. We've been using a research methodology that comes out of the personality and social psychology research of Simo Rosenberg and Mike Guerra and others who have at various times been affiliated with the psychology department at Rutgers University. The general idea that guides this methodology is that one's sense of self is actually a collection or an amalgam of more specific interrelated selves. And the methodology is one in which we gather large amounts of self-report data from individuals regarding these various selves or identities that they enact. Once identities are derived from many different sources and in many different contexts, they're derived from the individual's family relationships, like myself as a son or myself as a cousin to Joe, or they could be derived from occupations or hobbies, like myself as a teacher, myself as a volunteer at the nursing home, myself as an artist, or they could be derived from one's friendships, myself as a friend to Lisa, or they could come from one's religious affiliation, group memberships, physical characteristics, health conditions, etc. The goal here is to get from the individual a representative inventory of these different sources of identity. Then, once we have that inventory of identities, we gather a vocabulary of what we call features. These are the words and short phrases that the individual uses to describe herself and enacting the various identities. For example, when I'm an artist, I might feel free, excited, expressing myself, and at times I might feel sad or frustrated. And when I'm enacting a different identity, perhaps that of a student, I might experience myself as having some of these same features, but others as well. So this process is one of gathering identities and then determining the descriptive words and phrases, or what we call features, 
that the individual might use to describe herself in each of those identities. The result is a matrix of identities by features. If you can imagine a matrix where the identities are listed across the top and the descriptive features are listed along the side, with the body of the matrix filled with ones and zeros indicating whether or not the individual attributes any particular feature to any particular identity. Then we get to the fun part, or at least I think it's fun. We can then take that matrix of ones and zeros and toss it into a really wonderful statistical algorithm that was developed by Paul Book, who's a researcher in Belgium, and Seymour Rosenberg at Rutgers. The algorithm, as you said, is called High Class. High Class is an acronym for Hierarchical Classes Analysis. It's a clustering algorithm that's in some respects similar to the hierarchical clustering procedure that you might find in SPSS or the other common statistical packages. But it has the advantage of hierarchical clustering and organizing both sides of that matrix, not only the identities, but it clusters and organizes the features as well. So both sides of that matrix get organized in a hierarchical fashion. It organizes the identities based on their sharing of features, and it organizes the features based on their co-occurrence among the identities. The output of that algorithm gives us what we need to construct what is basically a very rich graphical depiction of the interrelationships among someone's identities and among the features as well. In effect, it is a map of the individual's sense of self. Now, with that map, with that graphical depiction, by looking at things like the number and the content of different clusters that are formed by the analysis, we're able to look at things like how complex one's overall sense of self is. And we can look at indices that suggest the subjective importance of any particular identity within that broader map, within the broader sense of who the individual is. So when we're using this technique to look at identity in people who are participating in the arts, for example, we can get a sense of how prominent the arts are as a source of identity for the individual, how central the arts are to that person's sense of self. And at a qualitative level, we can get a real good sense of what kinds of features, what kinds of self-descriptors the individual associates with his or her being an artist. If any of our listeners are so inclined, they might want to use their favorite search engine to search the words high class. It's H-I-C-L-A-S, just one S, and identity. And they'll come up with a number of articles. Some of them will be open access articles that have simplified or abbreviated high class depictions so they can get a better feel for what we're talking about here. And we at Matheny have a number of publications that are specific to the use of high class with persons who have disabilities. And you might find those in the disability literature or in the psychology literature. I don't believe that any of those are open access at, at this point. But if anyone would like to get in touch with us here at Matheny, we'd be glad to get the references to you. You've certainly touched on some key points and some critical aspects of it. But I'm wondering if there's any other specifics or unique aspects related to these analyses that you'd like to mention. Yeah, I think the most unique and interesting thing about this process of mapping an individual sense of self is that it helps us look at identity in persons with disabilities, or anyone for that matter, in a way that gives us both ends of the qualitative and quantitative spectrum. We get fantastically colorful qualitative information about the individual, showing us a wonderful snapshot 
of how the individual experiences any one of their specific identities or cluster of identities. But it also gives us a bunch of things that can be looked at quantitatively across individuals and even between groups. We can compare structural aspects of identity, like overall complexity of one's sense of self, between groups based on disability status, based on individuals' living situations, or really any of a range of variables. So do you see any benefits to participating in this process? Well, this is Bonnie again, and I can tell you after doing several of these sequence of interviews with people at the facility here, they generally seem to find it very fun and enlightening to go through. More specifically, that the structural map that arises from the algorithm becomes an actual visual representation where they can see how their roles and attributes interact amongst each other. And so it's really enlightening for the individual. It gives them a lot of self-information. And uh, it's a really well-suited methodology for our population who have issues with articulation and speech. The responses that are elicited from the respondents are typically short phrases and adjectives describing themselves when enacting certain personas. It also, as Ken alluded to, elicits graphic self-reflections, oftentimes a very poetic, individualistic way. Can you provide some examples of how self-perceptions may be depicted? Well, what we've been finding is that every structure that arises from these individuals completing this process is distinct and unique. The self-perceptions that are displayed in a very individualized identity structural map. And in reviewing several of these high-class analyses with people who are participating in the Arts Access program, it was striking to us how those art personas, if you will, seem to rise high in the structural hierarchy and are invariably associated with positive attributes. So the fact that they rise high in the structure suggests to us that this has prominence for the individual and the fact that they're associated with positive attributes or features may have implications for their perceptions of life quality in these individuals. Eileen can provide a wonderful illustration of how one artist articulated her life experience, which beautifully became reflected in her structural map. I'm going to ask Eileen to share that with you now. Sure. Thanks, Bonnie. This particular artist created a multidisciplinary performance piece, which in itself was an artistic masterpiece of self-expression. And at the same time, the content expressed the different identities that she felt she had within her. So she first created a written dramatic piece called Four People, One Body. And from there, she choreographed a dance to accompany it, she chose actors for the voiceover and directed each one. She designed the costumes and the makeup, chose the music, and also had one of her paintings titled Hell projected behind the performance. And I'd actually like to quote directly from her original script because it really is more powerful than my description could ever be. So this is right from that. And she starts out, I have four people who live inside me. One person is strong, the other weak. One person is sexy, the other one's crazy. They have names. Natalia is the weak one. Star Crystal is the strong one. Nicole is the sexy one. And Snug Vamp 
is the crazy one. The strong one uses the weak one's experiences as material for her art. She uses art like medicine to heal the others. We don't like pills. For some reason, Natalia tried painting. She found it helped with her anger and depression. Hell was painted during this period. Nicole loves sex. Nicole is a bad girl, according to Natalia. Star Crystal doesn't think Nicole is bad. Natalia is more conservative while Star Crystal is a free-spirited artist. Snug Vamp pushes Nicole to do things that Natalia wouldn't approve of. Sometimes she gets Star Crystal to try new things in the arts. It's sort of like sisters fighting over a car. We know what days we get. Nicole is the substitute when any of the others wants a break. Sometimes we have PMS. It's worse for everybody. When the body is in pain, Snug Vamp takes over because she enjoys pain. We want people to understand us. And when I tell you that this piece was moving, funny, poignant, insightful to view, that doesn't even begin to do it justice. It really sounds like a tremendous example of self-expression, but also how not only the individual, but staff can benefit from the engagement. Absolutely true. And not only staff, this piece was performed at a yearly event that we do here in Arts Access called Full Circle. And it's a multidisciplinary event displaying the visual art. And then there's also a stage show which incorporates the dramatic, the dance, all of the arts into this cohesive piece. And Four People, One Body was performed at Full Circle to an audience, I would say, of 250 to 300 people. And people came up to me afterwards and they said that was life changing for me. So it really goes far towards educating and enlightening the public as to what people with disabilities can do. And so we've gotten one scenario of what it's perhaps like for one individual. But in general, what is the experience like for the Arts Access participants? Well, this is Bonnie again speaking, and I'd like to share that from what we've been able to glean, the approach is an opportunity for self-expression that they might not be exposed to in more conventional forms of art or recreational programs. One particular respondent articulated in an extremely nuanced way, saying that being involved in this process put her in a free-minded world, and just being able to elicit that kind of expression has not been able to be obtained through other types of interview formats. Another aspect from the program that could be best articulated through hearing some quotes from actual participants. And if I can share some of those with you, I think they could, as Eileen indicated, much more clearly describe the experience from their perspectives. They basically include expressions of being in control and allowing themselves to fully express themselves. Here's some quotes. I am free because I have the only say in what happens in my art. It relaxes me and allows me to get my frustrations out. I can express myself any way I want through my art, unlike the rest of myself, which is so controlled. I have constructed a world of color and idea that is unique to my individuality. I have a great deal of accomplishment knowing that this painting would not exist if it weren't for my idea 
and freedom to explore. And perhaps the most powerful quote I have in my sample here is, every paint stroke, every word, every dance step is ours. Yes, you're our hands, but art's access is so much higher than even art. It's survival. It's being able to let our emotions have a quiet place to run, a sanctuary. And uh, in terms of an aspect from the high-class depiction of the pilot data, we did mention that invariably the arts access personas were affiliated or associated, if you will, with positive self-perceptions. So this implies to us that being part of this arts program is an enriching experience and perhaps enhances the life quality for these individuals. Certainly quality of life is a critical issue when it comes to this population. And it also sounds like the arts access program removes some of the barriers that prevents that quality of life. Exactly. I mean, that is a key component of a conceptual model framework, if you will, that we're working from, whereby, and I'll talk about this when we get a little further into the interview about the social justice implications in terms of breaking down those barriers. But we do feel that this arts access program serves as an excellent illustration of one type of complex contextual social environment that by participation provides our participants with the ability to become producers and contribute to society which is so enhancing to their self-perceptions and yet then feeds back onto societal perceptions in looking at our population as contributors as opposed to just consumers so it has that component as well and it seems like this program certainly has the potential to benefit this population of individuals in multiple ways. But do you think that there are other populations that might benefit from this approach as well? Yeah, this is Bonnie again. And our arts access team has been requested to provide trainings in various other venues. Eileen and her team have provided trainings to other developmental centers out of state. We're in negotiations now with veterans hospitals and talking with people who are dealing with various trauma-related types of issues. There's perhaps a venue available in rehab facilities for people recovering from different types of physical trauma perhaps paralysis, Alzheimer's patients and other patients with different types of dementia, mental health populations in terms of depression, psychosis, perhaps even with different autism spectrum disorders and certainly with the elderly. This is Eileen and I just want to add in there, we've actually, and thank you, Bonnie, you really covered the spread of different populations that we can reach and are planning to reach and are currently reaching. Specifically, we're currently reaching people with autism on all ranges of the spectrum. We have two successful satellite programs that are operating in New Jersey, and all of those folks are on the autism spectrum. And it was really gratifying to us when we first did this to find out that the facilitated art process works with population very different from those at Matheny, but it does work. And what we do is we adapt the process, not only to the type of disability that that person has, but to each individual. So it's really exciting to think about the different people that could benefit from this process. Definitely. So where do you see your team going next? 
what do you see as future direction for this project? Well, this is Bonnie again, and without a doubt, empirical research needs to be done in a variety of different contexts. I mean, we have a very specific population that we work with, and certainly if the implications are to bring this out into other venues, research needs to be done to see the effectiveness or if there's differences with the responses that other populations might have to this approach. Currently, my dissertation research is a mixed methods approach, and I'm looking at the difference in identity complexity between arts access participants and non-participants, and I'm utilizing this high-class methodology, and I'm triangulating that with qualitative interviews in order to strengthen the credibility and the rigor of the analyses. But as far as implications for social work education practice, in thinking about this from a macro perspective, policy and social justice implications, as I mentioned before, in terms of breaking down barriers, as you mentioned, John, by providing access to such facilitated arts programs may underscore a path for individuals with severe and complex medical and physical disabilities to assume the more productive roles in society, thereby gaining higher social image, which may help to break down misperceptions, stereotypes, negative societal reactions, and open up policy decisions to provide greater access to creating stimulating social, recreational, educational, vocational environments for the population. So that's looking at it from a more macro policy perspective. And then from the micro perspective, in terms of the role enhancement, the ability to provide a venue for self-expression and self-determination, as those quotes and examples that Eileen alluded to very vividly portray, certainly seems to have life-enhancing aspects to this. And the other aspect that I do want to mention is that we do want to focus on the high-class analysis, perhaps its potential as a tool for diagnosis and assessment. These structural representations that develop out of the algorithm are really striking and they're so helpful in having this visual depiction to work with clients with and show them how their different roles that they enact interact with each other and what seems to be of the most important and of positive value because you do see the positive and the negative attributes as they're associated with the various roles. Could also provide perhaps information for clinicians in terms of resilience and building up resistance to trauma and loss. There may be that aspect to it as well, a potential. I really think that this is a tool, methodology, if you will, that has a future ahead of it in social work practice. It sounds that this certainly has quite a bit of potential and certainly is a more creative approach to helping individuals to be successful and can have considerable potential to carry over into other aspects of their life, whether or not they're in a residential facility or work with a clinician, etc. One thing I did neglect to mention that I really think is important as well is that the arts access facilitated communication techniques that they use, their methodology, which Eileen described before, 
in terms of the very specific involved process where the choice making options are broken down in a very specific manner can really perhaps provide a wonderful opportunity for training in terms of caregivers and family and other individuals that would be interacting with our population to express their needs and understand what they want in terms of self-determination factors. So I did want to mention that as well. Very good. Are there any other concluding remarks before we end our podcast today? I really appreciate University of Buffalo's interest in our project here and allowing us the opportunity to share this with you and do this podcast. So I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. This is Eileen, and I'd like to thank you also. I truly appreciate it. And from an artist and an arts access perspective, it's really so exciting for us to have what we do here brought into an evidence-based forum, if you will. The arts are so hard to measure, as we all know. And so for there to be a way to measure the impact on the people that participate in arts access is really invaluable. And so I'm so glad that Bonnie has chosen arts access to focus her thesis on and for Ken's participation also, of course. And uh, I'll chime in, John, thank you very much. And thank you to the university as well. You're welcome. And thank you for joining us today. You've been listening to Bonnie Wilkenfeld, Kenneth Roby, and Eileen Murray discuss the impact of the arts on identity structures of individuals with developmental disabilities on in social work. Hi. I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We look forward to your continued support of the series. For more information about who we are as a school, our history, our programs, and what we do, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu.